section ten of six radical thinkers by john mccunn this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter three the cobdenite doctrines of trade and non-intervention part two not that these prophecies were utterly false the tenant farmer was prosperous enough after free trade for a time till eighteen seventy at any rate nor is it to be forgotten that the same free trade policy which shattered the landlord monopoly in agriculture has by stimulating the growth of cities made even the barrenest of acres extraordinarily fruitful of ground rents as those who dwell in cities know it was not of this however not of the unearned increment from land that cobden was thinking when he tried to console the landlords and it need not be denied that his sanguine optimism here betrayed him into prophecies flagrantly false the decay of agriculture involving a loss which when capitalized has been made by experts to run into large figures must always be reckoned in any estimate of free trade policy yet the miscalculation cannot be said to invalidate cobden's central argument can it be denied that the corn law was bound up with monopoly that it was essentially a rent law can it be denied that abundance of cheap food had become vital to english industry can it be denied that the repeal of the corn laws ensured a supply of cheap food if it cannot we are far on the way to an approval of cobden's policy as to the import of food there is a tale that in eighteen forty five when cobden had in the house finished what lord morley thinks the best of his speeches the protectionists were heard to whisper peel must answer this peel so the story runs crumpled up his notes as he was heard to mutter let those answer him who can if there are those who do not relish the words as a confession it is always open to them to read them as a challenge imported food however must of course be purchased it must be paid for in exports visible or invisible as must also be those various other things which we need but cannot profitably or it may be cannot at all produce for ourselves now cobden's policy for exports is of the simplest it is all summed up in one word cheapness it is cheapness that will enable us to hold our home products against the foreigner it is cheapness that will enable us to secure the open markets of the world against rival exporters it is cheapness that will enable us even to pierce the hostile tariff walls of foreign markets nothing else will do diplomacy flags fleets armaments are futile in comparison we cannot dragoon the world not even our own colonies into taking our goods that policy of the cudgel is obsolete what remains is to persuade and entice by the cheapness that appeals to that deeply rooted instinct to buy in the cheapest market never was there such a profit of cheapness the fight is for commercial supremacy and the battle will rest with the cheapest but if we must have cheapness our course is so clear that common sense to which cobden was always appealing is enough to point it out 
we must secure from all available sources and at the least possible cost raw material and products partly manufactured and the instruments of production and out of these turn out the finished product which by the open sesame of cheapness will force its way into the markets of the world this is the trite and simple case for free imports all round it stands in need of no words to commend it stated thus abstractly it is all but self-evident to bring abundance of stuff at least cost whether raw material or partly manufactured goods to the door of the workshop and to equip the workshop at least cost with every inventive appliance and every economy that the whole world can afford this is the open secret of producing the cheap article protection prevents this protection in short is obstruction it is a way of preventing people from getting things it is equivalent to asking producers to revert to less easy methods and so far it has been said truly enough that it is not in essence different from asking a farmer to reap by sickle instead of machine or of a manufacturer to prefer hand-loom to steam-power machinery such things make production difficult and costly so does protection and indeed so convinced was cobden that by removal of these protective obstacles industry would advance by leaps and bounds that he believed as we have seen that the expansion of cheap manufacture by providing employment and by increasing the demand for food would prevent the farmer and the landowner from suffering at all foreign markets won and home markets held by cheapness with agriculture that greatest of all industries sustained by increasing working population and increasing demand for food this was cobden's expectation but this was not all his immediate aim of course was to convert this country but all through his agitation he never doubted that by converting britain he was but beginning the conversion of europe the very rapid conversion of europe there will not be a tariff in europe so runs the unfulfilled prophecy which will not be changed in less than five years to follow your example for it was not an insular or one-sided free trade that would content him though he never hesitated to prefer that to protection his expectations went out to nothing less than a complete international division of labour under which the production of the whole world would be maximised and the wants of each several country supplied on a basis of a free international exchange of commodities nor did this exhaust his outlook though fundamentally the movement was economic it had other it had political aims it was democratic inasmuch as it struck at the political no less than at the economic monopoly of the landed aristocracy thereby profoundly altering the political centre of gravity but above all it was to be not only the harbinger but the cause of peace and the breaking down of hostile barriers between nation and nation free trade he cries in one of his most vehement passages what is it why breaking down the barriers that separate nations these barriers behind which nestle the feelings of pride revenge hatred and jealousy 
which every now and then burst their bounds and deluge whole countries with blood even this did not suffice him for when his battle was won it was not enough for him to claim that he had carried through a great policy for the england of eighteen forty six he went far further in the pardonable enthusiasm of free trade victory he claimed to have proved free trade for all places and all times to him free trade principles were eternal truths he likens them to the law of gravitation he calls free trade the international law of the almighty he asserts it to be an exemplification of the golden rule of christianity we have a principle established now he says in eighteen forty six which is eternal in its truth and universal in its application and must be applied in all nations and throughout all times this is the voice of enthusiasm rather than of economics but as it was both meant and taken seriously it invites the remark that to say the least it was not the voice of worldly wisdom it was not necessary for cobden's practical purpose to prove so much he might well have been content to prove that free trade was the sound policy for the england of his day unfortunately he went on to asseverate in those somewhat wild and whirling generalizations that because it was sound then it was sound forever looked at theoretically this was all too bold a stride the thinker in politics especially since the middle of the nineteenth century has been coming to understand how wide is this step from a commercial policy however sound to an eternal truth even long before burke had declared that nothing universal could be affirmed in political subject matter and the growth of the historical and comparative method under the hands of maine and others has gone far to support the statement who can deny that it has been one of the decisive results of nineteenth-century political thought to reinstate in the light of the wider outlook on history and politics the ancient but still living deliverance of aristotle that between the rigorous universals of science and the looser generalizations of politics there lies in the very nature of political subject matter a world of difference this being so it is not for the practical politician to rush in where the political theorist fears to tread yet this is precisely what cobden does and he has to pay the inevitable penalty for the man who traffics in universals does so at a risk he lays himself open to attack he forgets that an eternal truth so called is really the most vulnerable of propositions it has the weakness that if proved false in a single case it goes to the ground at once illustration is not far to seek there are hostile critics of free trade who point to the fact that j s mill has admitted that protection may be the best policy for new countries they think that therefore free trade stands refuted there are other hostile critics who think that they can prove that free trade is not the policy for nineteen ten and they too think that therefore free trade stands refuted they are both right in the inference whatever be the value of their premises if free trade stands or falls as an eternal truth
but it need not stand refuted at all if only it be advanced with judicious moderation as what it was meant for a sound commercial policy for england at a particular epoch in her history the theorist perhaps may be pardoned for indulging in sweeping generalizations it is his nature to generalize but let the practical man remember that the width of a generalization in practical politics is so far from being a security that it does but offer a larger target for the shafts of the unbelieving nor can cobden be acquitted here of giving a fatally false lead to his followers the confident sweeping generalizations of the master have betrayed the disciples into an illusion of false security convinced that in eighteen forty six free trade was proved up to the hilt they seem to have come to regard it as therefore proved as cobden said it was once for all nay they even seem at times to resent its being so much as called in question and they might of course be justified even in their irritability if free trade were an eternal truth mankind or at least the practical part of it has no time and less patience to submit to be called upon to prove eternal truths over and over again yet it would certainly have been better for cobdenites if instead of assuming their cherished policy to be a truth never again to be called in question by reasonable men they had set themselves to prove it afresh to prove it for example to be no less sound for nineteen ten than cobden as they believe proved it sound for eighteen forty six it would really be a greater tribute to their master if instead of reposing on his enthusiastic unguarded and untenable eternal truth they emulated him in the courage the tenacity the lucidity the wide grasp of fact with which in his day he attacked the problem of the hour for the reasonable claim which the anxious political inquirer may to the last of time make on the cobdenite is not the mere resuscitation of the abstract economic principles upon which the free trade policy was victoriously argued nor yet the proof that it was the highest wisdom to apply these principles as cobden did with such effect in the free trade controversy it is rather the claim for a modest appendix containing a careful diagnosis of the body politic as it is here and now and a demonstration that the actual state of things industrially and politically renders a continuance of free trade nationally expedient this is the more desirable because since cobden's day such vast changes both political and commercial have passed over england and the world a brief consideration of at least some of these is essential one of the greatest is undoubtedly the growth both in fact and in idea of that spirit of nationality which is perhaps the most forceful and pregnant political movement of the present age we can see its influence in that very domain which cobden had made peculiarly his own for the tariff controversies which vex the beginnings of the twentieth century are much more than the divergencies of politicians and of parties there lies behind them a conflict between principles whose magnitude we can hardly yet gauge a conflict between the essentially cosmopolitan ideal of cobden 
which would fain level the barriers between nation and nation and encourage capital and labour to move freely whithersoever investment and employment might beckon them and the very different ideal which accepting the rivalries between nations as a cardinal fact cannot forget these dividing barriers so much so that it does not hesitate in the interests of national and imperial strength and unity to pursue a strictly national policy even to the extent of demanding enormous and at times appalling sacrifices of the citizen for it cannot be supposed that any one is likely to call in question the strength and the vitality of the spirit of nationality it is not merely that the nations of the world struggle as they have always struggled sometimes in peace and sometimes in war to assert their existence and achieve their ambitions their self-assertion has become more conscious more deliberate more resolute sometimes it takes one form sometimes another it may be the unification of a nation as in italy or the consolidation of a military empire as in germany or the emergence of a great state heretofore aloof in the arena of world politics as in the case of the united states or it may be a craving for colonial expansion or a hunger for spheres of influence whatever the form it may take it is there and it is one of the most irresistible of political forces at this moment nor is it only in the wider politics that this leaven of nationality has been working it has made itself felt also in that ideal of citizenship which has been gaining ground since the middle of the nineteenth century for is it not of the very essence of this ideal of citizenship that the citizen and the nation are bound together by bonds more intimate more organic than was previously supposed so that while on the one hand the citizen is declared to need the nation and active democratic participation in the affairs of the nation in order to realize a true citizenship so on the other hand the nation if it is to be a really organized nation strong both for defence and for the working out of its destinies must be able to reckon upon the absolute loyalty and devotion of its citizens now it is not to be assumed that this spirit of nationality is irreconcilable with cosmopolitanism and its breaking down of barriers between nation and nation on the contrary he who sets the idea of the nation in irreconcilable antagonism with the idea of mankind runs serious risk of destroying or at least impairing both for a genuine cosmopolitanism is doubtfully possible as coleridge declared except by antecedents of patriotism it is the natural law of the growth of sentiments and ideas that they pass out to foreigner slave or savage after they have found soil and nurture in the narrower and intenser relations of citizen to citizen on the other hand it is not less true as mazzini passionately urged that the nation will never be seen in its true character till it is valued as a supreme instrument resolutely to be used in the service of humanity nor did cobden himself cease to be a patriot by becoming cosmopolitan he was oftener taunted with preaching a gospel of narrow national self-interest 
yet it is not the less true that the idea of the nation and the idea of mankind may come into conflict exceedingly acute adjustment between the two is far from easy and this is manifest the moment we pass to a second of the signs of the times the conspicuous vitality of the spirit of protection it is matter of fact that the vitality of the protective spirit has falsified all cobden's forecasts and it is not to be wondered at for cobden's eye was upon trade and it is not considerations of trade alone that have maintained and built tariff walls in that case they would not be so formidable they might fall before free trade arguments no these tariff walls which stand so firm which show no signs of crumbling are due to the alliance of trade with the spirit of nationality for this spirit of nationality to which the national interests are paramount looks upon markets from a different point of view from that of cosmopolitan cobden who would fain have opened all the markets of all the world to everybody it does not concern itself much with the world as a whole it does not think of levelling the barriers between nations it thinks first and sometimes it also thinks last of securing markets for the national industries its instinct is for monopoly a large a national monopoly but still monopoly and if it can handicap or exclude altogether other nations from its own home markets or oust them in foreign markets or monopolize spheres of influence the probability is that it will try to do so it has no aspirations after an international division of labor it lends no ear to free trade theories it is deeply dipped in the spirit not only of industrial but of political rivalry and though it may be denounced by free traders as fatuous and as defeating its own ends by its fiscal follies it is not shaken it goes on for the reason why it does not accept free trade arguments is not that it cannot understand them they are not at all hard to understand the reason is that it looks at the facts the facts of trade and commerce from a different point of view nor can there be a doubt that it is a sincere belief in the strength and vitality of this point of view that has awakened in many minds those fears and warnings with which we have been recently made so familiar fears lest this country might come by the action of its rivals to be circumscribed in that access to markets upon which as cobden so clearly saw it depends not only for the disposal of its wares but even for the food which its exports purchase and must continue to purchase if as a nation it is to hold its own End of section 10.